Welcome to Message Received. In this episode, Ravi and Natalie are speaking about reaching the emotional brain of your audience. Hello and welcome to Message Received. My name is Natalie and I'm your host for this new episode of our podcast series around leadership. And it's my pleasure to welcome Ravi Rao to the show. I've been introduced to Ravi earlier this year as part of my volunteer work with TEDx Basel. Ravi has a very human approach to leadership and delivered an excellent talk named Let Your Tears Out at Work that is now available on YouTube and that I highly recommend to watch. Hello, Ravi, and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Ravi, do you want to start by maybe telling our listeners, telling us a bit about you and what what you're up to and what you've been doing? Thanks for asking. I have an unusual path and as an un, as a person of an unusual path, it has led me to do unusual work. I have been helping organizations for the last 15, almost 20 years to improve the emotional culture in the workplace. So people can feel more energized, so people don't feel so burned out. And the way I got there is the unusual part. I actually started out in university in my 20s studying medicine and neuroscience. And I did my dissertation PhD research on brain injuries in children, really interested in how the science of the brain works. After doing all that, I realized that the path I really wanted to work with was not in either research or at a patient's bedside, but more broadly in the world. And I began a career at McKinsey. And I was a management consultant working with organizations more on topics of strategy and finance. But I realized that so many of the problems in organizations were not only in the technical elements, the strategy, the finance, but were often on the people elements. And one day about about 15, 16 years ago, a client said to me, you know, I wish We used our heart around here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I wish we could understand how people feel and, you know, lead with a sense of the people in mind. And I started to laugh. He says, no, why are you laughing? I'm not being funny. And I said, no, I totally believe in what you're saying. I just think it's funny that you think that happens in the heart. That's a, the heart is a muscular pump that gets blood to organs, but what we fear and what we love and what we feel connected to, those don't happen in the middle of the chest. They happen happen in the middle of the head, in the brain. And having that background in the neuroscience of emotion and where does emotion happen in the brain? He said to me, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Can you give me and my team a talk on that on Friday? And I said, sure. And I've been doing that talk now for 16 years. Wow, this is so interesting. So you have you have several hats, right? <laughs> You're wearing several hats. I mean, I come in with the science, so it's not just a kind of, oh, here's something I made up. You know, it was based on what we know about the brain. It was informed then by understanding how businesses work by my years at McKinsey to see what the inner workings of a business look like. And I simply merged the two pieces. And so my hats now, as you say, are coming in as a consultant, sometimes just to advise, but very often an organization will ask me, hey, 
I, we just don't want a lecture or a seminar or a video. We actually want you to help our people feel better, help our people lead better using emotion. So that's where it began for me uh, in the early to mid 2000s. And uh, the pandemic has certainly changed the whole emotional dynamics of the workplace. If you're not in even the same building, you may not even be in the same city anymore. And yet you still have to somehow figure out a way to keep people motivated, keep them feel connected as they do work remotely or in some kind of hybrid. Exactly. I was about to ask you, you were mentioning uh, in your introduction, the culture piece. And I think recently with the pandemic, the remote work, which in fact has already existed, but now is more, it's more at the global scale, right? We, I guess, need to be even more feel more connected with our team to to be you know to be effective and to to deliver the work so i think you might have seen a different like different patterns also from the past years right definitely a different pattern although the pattern i would most highlight and i think most people will relate to this is not the oh how do we keep people uh, at their top most motivated level Actually, with the pandemic, the degree of to which people feel isolated, to the degree to which people feel like their schedule is not so easy to control anymore, there is a kind of expectation of the hours working has changed and the nature of when things will get delivered. There are no break times now. You know, there are no like uh, moments that you have as downtime for very many uh, organizations. And so now the emotional challenge is how do you keep that? How do you sustain people still feeling like they are motivated and want to do great things for the customers, for the company, for themselves, in spite of the kind of isolation that goes has gone with the pandemic? I think when people start to return to work and see each other's faces, it will get better. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people have just been voicing to me how tired they feel all the time right now. And and it's also something that we can we are hearing at audience we are hearing a lot with uh, with our clients as well that uh, exactly what you said that this the the working hours are becoming super long uh, you don't really know when you you are expected to you know deliver you are always on camera um, so I think we've also been doing a couple of on our side couple of workshops and co a couple of presentation on how to make this type of work sustainable in the long term because. It doesn't look like everything is going, to, nothing is going to go back to normal. They, they, it's a new normal, right? It's uh, something, it's it's a different way of working. Um, Ravi, I'm, I'm wondering, um, so we're talking about culture, about emotion, and what, in your own word, what are the challenges for the leaders today with regards to, with regards to emotions? You know, the classic challenge still remains current, which is leaders get educated in, things that are very quantifiable, like budgets and mm -hmm. key performance indicators and tracking in scorecards. And the hard part has always been, so everybody should just work like a machine and a computer and deliver numbers and we will measure the numbers and the results. And the unfortunate thing is far too much of the brain is devoted to emotional awareness and emotional connection and emotional processing. And so the only way you can really be a leader who gets long-term sustained results is to figure out a way to deal with the human side of the equation. New leaders will come in and say, oh, I have the perfect plan. I'm just going to make the perfect plan and everything will fall into place. 
but the dilemma has always been the emotions of the people. The hard part is there are enough people out there promoting, selling, marketing, some kind of emotional work. And in the end, it doesn't work because it doesn't feel right to people. It's either, oh, we're going to come in and do office parties, or we're going to come in and give everybody uh, Hawaiian flowers for their neck and make them, or we're going to do parties where we, or uh, events where we bring all the leaders together and they have to play a silly game with a blindfold and then work goes back to normal the way it always does. And people said, why did we waste half a day doing that? And so the real challenge is not the, can you play a game together in a room completely separated from your daily work, but can you figure out ways in your interactions to make the emotional side of the brain engaged in the acts of work? You're not gonna do less quantitative work, you're not going to do less strenuous or rigorous work uh, than than you would have otherwise, but you have to figure out ways that when you communicate and when you interact and when you involve people to solve a problem, how do you do so that acknowledges the fact that a lot of their brain is devoted to the feeling that they're experiencing? We get sort of taught like ignore that. Babies get told stop crying. So it's a kind of human thing to always be told less emotion, less emotion, less emotion. But when we suppress it and don't acknowledge it for decades, it has a way of coming out in other very negative ways in the conflicts people have. So if I understand what you're saying, it's really in the day-to-day -day interaction that we can make a difference. It's not by just coming, as you said, to a one-time event and feeling all connected this needs to be sustained through the time and the work and the years and everything that is going as a team so it, it needs to be something embedded into the day-to-day -day work life absolutely correct well stated it is emotion is not okay now and then we have to have the celebration that that can be part of it that can help but emotion really is can we as leaders understand that our job is not only the scorecard, it's not only the performance indicators, but our job, especially for high demanding uh, roles, is to make sure people continue to feel excited about what they're doing, to continue to feel appreciated for what they're doing, continue to feel like they're growing. And that most often comes not from the work itself, but from the supervisors they have, the managers they have, the colleagues they have, and the culture they have to work in. If they wake up, if an employee wakes up first thing on Monday morning and feels a sickness in their stomach because, oh no, I have to go there again. That's a very bad start to a, a work week. What we hope exactly. is that people look forward to seeing people they haven't seen since Friday. Exactly. So how do we how do we help or the leaders who are listening to us uh, today to, to do that, to be more connected and to to be aware of the uh, the emotional state of their team? A lot of it comes down to things we don't even pay that much attention to. But when we change this small thing in our language, we actually have a huge impact. I early on in, like I said, in my career, I was interested in how brain development happens in children and watching children's brain patterns after injury. 
And one of the things I started to notice is just by watching children and just having observational time with them, both in hospitals and elsewhere, is to understand that they communicate quite differently than adults do. And I started to see patterns of adults who had head injuries have their communication patterns. And what I had learned from the kids kind of fit together with that. And over time, it uh, created and allowed me to see that humans really speak from our youngest days of language up to adulthood in seven different, if you want to call them formats, if you want to call them languages. And these seven languages are the ways that children in particular use all seven all the time. But adults tend to narrow it down and end up using only on their own personality style, two of them, sometimes three of them. But a leader who says, I want to keep my team engaged, a secret that I've told to now, I don't know, however many hundreds or thousands of managers around the world is change your speech by including more of these seven and you will be shocked at how your team begins to act differently and feel differently just because what you're doing is giving that part of the brain a little bit of a stimulation. So there are seven languages. I'm happy to go through them with you. I was about to ask, please. I want to know more about this. Okay. Um, you know, it's not manipulation. It's not a kind of secret way of brainwashing people. It's nothing like that. It's just a very simple to understand approach to speaking. I myself actually make sure I've included all seven of them as often as I can when I'm interacting with someone. So the seven languages are, I'll just list them first, are numbers, logic, stories, inspiration, promises, laughter, and empathy. When you're a leader and you're only speaking in the first two, I'm the leader. All I do is speak numbers and logic, numbers and logic, numbers and logic. There may be some sense of I feel good about that or it makes me feel strong and powerful to speak that way or it makes me sound very analytical and others will admire me for speaking so analytically. But as leaders know who especially have been leading for some amount of time, it very often people will say, oh, I'm not doing it or oh, I don't feel motivated by that. And it may be intellectually impressive that we're speaking in numbers and logic, but that gets into I want to impress people rather than I want to lead or inspire people. So the other five very often are the tougher ones for many people in the business world to do. Now, I've done some creative seminars for people in Hollywood and in New York fashion. And when they are talking, they don't use a lot of numbers and logic always. They're creating like, oh, we could make this blue or we could, you know, put a stripe up against the wall. So they're not. So for them, taking on the language of numbers or logic uh, is their lesson to be learned. So that's those are the seven languages I can. If you wish, I can take a moment to explain each one. I would love to, please. So numbers is is kind of self-explanatory when we're saying to people you know, here's the evidence for it. We don't want to just say there is data. We want to actually stimulate their brain, kind of catch their attention by a specific number. 62% of the customers have stated this. That stays with people. It's something they'll remember in their brain. That there was that specific number. The logic of an argument is simply to say, look, if you think this, then logically, this is also a conclusion. And very often people will say, oh yeah, 
I do believe the first thing. So therefore, the second thing has to be true. So that kind of connection, a lot of people use that. Uh, but when we start to use both numbers and logic in our conversations, even just in our updates, in our town hall meetings, in our messages on our own internal websites telling the team how things are going, our short little bursts from the, the executives to the teams, you know, they very often have numbers and logic, but the real secret is in the recipe, if you'll call it, to have these other five. So the third one is stories. Stories means not like the story, some kind of business story, but a story means a case example, uh, an illustration. You know, and people say, well, that's not professional. I I'll tell you, it may not be in the modern definition prof professional, but some of the greatest leaders have used stories. Buddha speaks in stories. So it's possible to to communicate ideas sometimes in stories better than just simply with mm -hmm. logical narration. In fact, what do children do to take in information about the world? They say, mom, please read me a story. So exactly. stories are very pre-wired in our ability to understand and retain information. Um, you know, in the uh, history of many religions, it was not, it was pre-written uh, possibility. So the various religious traditions, very many of them have their texts that are written now used to simply be a, a transmission of stories. Inspiration is where we use a phrase not to deliver a specific quantitative or technical piece of information, but where we use the idea of an aspiration. This is what we want to be. This is what we could be. This is what we might have in the future in order to bring people onto the message. John Kennedy, the president of the US in the early 60s, in one of his famous speeches says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Dr. Martin Luther King, also in the 1960s said, you know, I have a dream that one day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Aspirational statements that allow us to say, well, what might we be? And very often business leaders have to do the same thing. Figure out some common vision, some grand idea that everyone can be a part of. And even on a day-to-day -day basis, a particular leader might find there is a great phrase they read in a book or saw online somewhere. And they want that to be the idea that motivates and captures their team. So it becomes a repetitive statement more so to kind of be an inspirational idea that others can understand why are we trying to do this. And I guess the aspiration as well is, is leading to, to change, right? Because this is where we all want to go as a, as a team. So it is, it's, 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 very, it's very powerful. Indeed, you're exactly right in the way you said that. It's like, this is where we want to go. Because very often teams will lose motivation, get off track because they don't have a sense of where are we going or why are we doing it. Promises are a little bit different than logic or inspiration. Promises are where we essentially tell people, look, this is what's good for the customer. This is what's good for the business. But a promise is here's what's good for you. Here's why I think you will benefit from uh, joining this idea or joining this movement or being part of this effort we're doing. This is how your life is going to get better. So it's so, more on an individual level rather the, than the collective level from the inspiration, for example. 
Exactly. Okay. The inspiration is about the grander big idea for all. The promise is more to say, this will be hard, but for you in this number of months, your life will get better. There'll be less of this difficulty and so on. Humor and laughter, the next language, are cultural. So, and very, very sensitive topics. So many leaders are just told, no jokes, no jokes. You're gonna offend somebody, so no jokes. But I will tell you over time, one of the things that I have found to be a very good predictor of business performance is walking through the halls of a, uh, uh, the corridor of a, an office building and listening for laughter. And if I hear no laughter for three straight days walking through the hallways of a company, then there are some deeper challenges around fear and anxiety and sadness and anger in the place. So laughter is one of those natural things. Now, how do you do that in an appropriate way? Of course, there should be some boundaries and limitations, no jokes about gender, about sexual orientation, about physical appearance, about race, about weight. Take those off the table, you can still be silly and just sometimes inspire people with a bit of humor. I tend to use jokes that I don't think will offend anyone, like uh, start off a meeting with a joke like, uh, what is the favorite sushi of the accounting group? Payroll. <laughs> Simple kinds of things can just sometimes lighten a meeting and people can take part in like what, who tells the joke of the meeting. Now it can get difficult and not have positive benefit if you mandate and every agenda there should be a joke, but the use of humor can keep the group emotionally connected. And I, last, love, that, I love that indicator. <laughs> it is really, it's amazing how if you tell me there's bad performance and I don't hear any laughter, there is something that is combining the two. And then finally, the last of these seven languages or formats and ways we speak is the idea of including empathy in our language. It's one thing to talk in numbers and logic and stories, but when we really want to address how people feel, one of the strongest ways is just to talk about how people feel. So not necessarily in front of other people, not in places where they can become uncomfortable or uh, not want it revealed elsewhere, but privately, one-on-one, -on -one, outside of the meeting environment to talk to people and say, you know, use words like, are you scared? Should we talk about what's frustrating the group? And using language that allows both questioning as well as statements to allow emotions to be spoken of directly. Because when we do that, we engage those parts of the brain in a way that the other languages don't. It has to be done safely. It has to be done where people can feel that it's not gonna have repercussions or hurt them later. But you know, even presidents of the United States have used phrases like, I feel your pain in order to connect with people that way. That's, that's great. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Can we say it's a formula? with all this, the different uh, dimension and indicators that you shared. Maybe last question for you, Ravi. How would you recommend people are using this, this indicator? Should they do like a quick checklist whenever they're talking to someone or doing a presentation? How would you, how would you recommend to, to use this? I'd say there's a way to use it on the, on the bigger scale and a way to use it on the daily scale. On the, on the bigger scale, when you're sending out a document that is very important that you're presenting to a very broad group, perhaps at a town hall as an executive, or you're trying to reach many different stakeholders in some common way, 
this formula, this recipe, this checklist becomes very helpful. Do we have all seven? Very often um, when someone is making a speech or something very for a large audience, this kind of checklist can be very helpful. The second way in a grand way uh, it can be used um, is making sure we have talking points in all seven languages. So maybe we don't put it in the formal part of the speech, but when a sales rep or maybe when a uh, communications person is having to connect with external stakeholders and so on, uh, you want some of your answers to the frequently asked questions to be in a logic numbers format, but you may want one or two of them to be in a story format. You know, here's a question and we want to tell you the example of a customer in Belgium who experienced a certain thing and then maybe even have a humorous statement at the end of an FAQ to kind of leave people with a smile kind of thing. Um, so that's on the grand scale. On the individual scale, I actually think each individual person has some preference out of these seven. And so if you're the leader and you've been using numbers and logic with all your team members, but there's a couple of people who just don't seem to be as motivated, don't seem to be on board. One of the simple things you can try is talk to them in one of the other languages, maybe one that you're less comfortable with, but try now and then using some empathy, try using now and then a story, try using now and then some laughter or a promise and see if it makes a difference. Because some people inherently in their brain is a little bit more predisposed to be on board, like their leader, be part of the thing if they have some laughter. And so maybe they need a little more of it. Another person needs a little less of it. And so it's kind of finding the right entry to each person and their brain. And I think it can be also kind of an experiment, right? If you're if you're a leader and as you said, you're using logic and numbers, but you don't usually you don't usually using story and, and laughter, laughter, then uh, it's something you can try. Uh, OK, maybe this week I will try to speak more about promise, for example, and then the week after more about empathy. Yeah, it can be a, it can be an, a good experiment and seeing the reaction of the team, right? It's also going to inform the leader what is you know what is working best with with, with each person that's a great way of, of putting it forward in that uh, if you're a leader and you have a weekly meeting you know you might try experimenting yourself with you know what this week i'm going to speak in all the normal ways but i'm going to throw in a little bit more of a story than i normally would and then the following week you know i'm going to speak more to the people directly and tell them the promises i think they want to hear and need to hear in order to feel uh, more connected to the mission of the project we're on. So using all of them in more ways, what you're essentially saying is, hey, uh, just as an athlete or a bodybuilder sometimes has leg days and sometimes has arm days and sometimes does cardio, you've got to mix it up for mix. the brain as well in order to, to create the greatest amount of brain health. This is very helpful. Thank you a lot for sharing. Final question, Ravi, for you. Um, you know, our, our podcast is called Message Received. So what message would you like our listeners to take away from, from our discussion today? Everyone is different. Speak to them in the language that they will hear. That's a perfect conclusion. And that totally makes sense. Thanks a lot, Ravi, for being with us today. I really enjoy our discussion and I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Message Received. Join us next week for storytelling, how to communicate your message. Thanks for listening and don't forget to follow Message Received.